and welcome to Cool for Cats with me, Amy Hughes. We're inviting you in for a black coffee and a chat about our favorite band, Squeeze. In this episode, I'm welcoming journalist and author Annie Zaleski. Hello, Annie. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have had an extremely storied background just in regards to the fact that there's a category that we all remember and love called alternative. And despite the fact that Squeeze was categorized uh, for quite a few years back in their earliest incarnations with new wave slash uh, alternative, I thought maybe you might sort of give your background um, as to how you started, uh, how you uh, came into uh, the musical background of Squeeze. That's such a good question. And I've been thinking about this because I I came of age in the 90s. And as I've told people, you know, in hindsight, one of the things that has been most interesting or, you know, that I, to me, that I feel very lucky about is that during the 90s, alternative, you know, I use that loosely, there was alternative radio or modern rock radio kind of had a resurgence. Um, you know, it was kind of building before Nirvana, you know, uh, took off in 1991, 92. But it really just sort of exploded, you know, with alternative, you know, I, I, I'm, whenever I use alternative, I'm using that in air quotes. So alternative culture, things like Lollapalooza and things like that. And I distinctly remember listening to a lot of these so with the alternative radio. They paired a lot of the new modern music that was coming out in the 1990s with 80s music and with the, as you kind of said, loosely new wave synth pop alternative music, um, you know, kind of the stuff maybe you weren't hearing on top 40 stations, the stuff you really weren't hearing on mainstream rock stations. And Squeeze is one of those bands. And so, you know, you would hear Squeeze, you would hear all of their kind of 80s hits on specialty shows, flashback retro shows, you know, every so often you'd hear them in regular rotation. And I distinctly remember seeing the video, I think it was you know, there was this weird like video. I don't even remember. It was like, I don't know if it was the box or it was this, uh, you know, like other like weird cable channel. It wasn't MTV. I don't know if it was even like a specialty show. I have no idea. But I also remember seeing squeeze music videos there. Like I remember seeing the other nail in my heart video there. And I think um, that that's like the biggest one I remember. And And Annie, get your gun as well. And it was so weird because it's like, that was, you know, that's obviously for squeeze fans, that's a huge song, but for Americans, that's not, those aren't necessarily the like squeeze songs they know. So I, you know, really became aware of squeeze then. And then like, you know, and then I remembered, you know, as a kid growing up that I totally remember it when Babylon and on hit in America, hourglass, I definitely heard that on the radio. And in hindsight, as an adult, I'm like, I remember that now, you know, I have some vague childhood memories. So I mean, more or less, they've always sort of been omnipresent in my life, I guess, in, in a sense. And it's weird because I came to like the different eras of squeeze at different times, in a sense. So it wasn't a very sort of linear um, discovery, I guess you would say. And it was a very long answer, so apologize. No apologies needed because that's how much we like this band, uh, love this band. <laughs> The uh, the interesting part about all of that is you were heavily involved, of course, in the alternative scene back in the 90s. Let's uh, let's have you give a little bit of a background on that. 
Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Cause that was when I was a kid, that was all I listened to and, you know, was alternative music. And, you know, the nice thing about that, I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, you know, and so like, I, you know, I've, I've told a story several times, but we had a really awesome library. Like our town library had whoever was buying the music for it had really great taste in music. So you could get like these very cool, like, you know, I could go to the library and take out the Velvet Underground and Nico. I could go to the library and, you know, they had their vintage craft work cassette from the seventies. They didn't get rid of it. You could still take it out. You could get early REM there. And so you could take out all of these, um, you know, formative records. And so I had this kind of, you know, so, and, and you know, this was before, you know, the internet was starting to become home. Internet was starting to become a thing. And so, but it really wasn't very, um, you know, it wasn't very common yet. And so it was one of those things where it's like, well, how do you discover new music? How do you discover this alternative music? We had a really great radio station, a mainstream, you know, alternative radio station. We had really awesome college radio stations in Cleveland too. We had three or four that were always playing these interesting sounds. And so I would listen to them all the time. You know, I'd go to record stores and just kind of, you know, when I had the money, buy some stuff that, you know, I was really interested in. I'd heard on the radio that I wanted to hear more. And, um, and you'll get stuff out of the library. And, you know, and that's how I sort of discovered this music. Oh, and music magazines, duh, of course, as a writer. And so I would, you know, read magazines that I could. But all this quote unquote, I think alternative music, because it was sort of having a mainstream moment, it was actually accessible. It wasn't like maybe in the 80s where you had to have a zine or you had to have a friend who knew about it. There were actually ways that the stuff kind of filtered through, even if you lived in like the suburbs of, of a, you know, a town that, you know, was pretty square where everyone liked the Grateful Dead and everyone liked Dave Matthews Band. You know, I was I was not necessarily a fan of those bands. And so it was sort of like, where, where's my space? Where do I fit in? And so the alternative scene sort of just spoke to me, I guess. Yeah, and that was also the scene that I was actually writing about back then as well. And there, the interesting part in regards to Squeeze is not a lot of those bands were referencing them. No. I think by that time they were all the sort of bright, shiny or shoegazing uh, Britpop bands that um, I was talking to who just felt they were God's gift to the world. um, And they just wanted to uh, dig their own avenue and, and not have to worry about bands that had sold out, quote unquote, like the police who had actually started off really as a very small band, you know, sort of a la squeeze, not as pubby as as the word suggests. But when you think back to that, they obviously had uh, one up because of bands like Squeeze. Um, and we had been talking before the podcast about, well, what was, what avenue, what, what, uh, what outlet did Squeeze have that a lot of other bands didn't have that they could make an impression on? And that, of course, uh, was MTV. So what was your immediate response to MTV? And how how early did you get it? Because they started off in August of 1981. Correct. It's funny because in, I've, had, I've been having some conversations recently in that, so because you know, the, the whole thing about MTV is that if the suburbs got it first. This was like, you know, in, in sort of a, you know, the the whole the conventional wisdom is that if you're in a big city, you're going to all the cool stuff, the cool fashion, the cool concerts and everything. MTV really upended that. And so 
it was the suburbs that got it first. And so I know I grew up in a suburb that actually was wired for MTV. And my parents, it's funny, my parents recently told me, yeah, you know, you are, we had a friend and uh, he worked for the cable company. So he showed us how we could get all the channels. So I was like, oh, well, that makes sense why we had HBO so early then. All right. I totally get that. So obviously maybe we were pirating cable, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, so 40 years ago. Um, and I think we had MTV, but I think my parents blocked it which is extremely funny because they're not necessarily uptight people. You know, they're actually like pretty cool with it people. You know, my dad texted me to let me know Depeche Mode was on Colbert the other night, you know, so he really like keeps up with stuff. And I, I don't, I, for whatever reason, and I, I didn't know this until recently that they blocked it, which is very funny. And so I have, so we must have had it, but I didn't have access to it. I have vague memories though of like in the late 80s, like potentially seeing like a George Michael video and then, um, you know, by the time I hit like the early nineties, you know, my parents didn't care, you know, a cable had evolved. And so I was like, probably starting in about 1992. Um, yeah, about 1992, I was heavily into MTV and pretty much 92 until I went off to college in the late nineties and I didn't really have cable anymore regularly. I had it in like dorm room, you know, common areas. Um, but I was heavily, heavily into MTV. And VH1, too, to a certain extent, and they were, you know, they played some overlap, you know, some not. VH1 played more of the 80s videos and the retro videos, so I happened to like, you know, I like them at certain times, too. But, like, I loved Alternative Nation. I loved 120 Minutes. I would tape 120 Minutes. I still have my VHS tapes of that because, and that was at midnight on Sunday. And so we were able to kind of access that. So that was sort of, like, my entry to MTV, Um you know, and it's, you know, and it's funny in hindsight to think about that, like, there was some stuff MTV in the 80s, there was definitely some risque stuff on there, some stuff you're like, yeah, you don't want like a, you know, a child to be watching this. Um, some of the other stuff that I think that people got so, you know, upset about back then looks a lot tamer now. But it, you know, it all, you know, it's it's funny, because it's, you you can kind of go both ways with that. It was also definitely an outlet for a lot of those you know, I'm going to call them like the early versions of alternative bands totally. because they if they had a really weird um, video, um, like what was that band that did fish heads? Oh, Barnes and Barnes. Right. Where the heck are you going to play that on any, you know, sort of semi mainstream station in America? No, you're going to have this wacky visual um you know, with, of course, that sort of hyped up chipmunk kind of vocal playing endlessly on on MTV. And we actually got MTV in December of 81. Oh. And I was very puzzled by it. <laughs> um, I was a senior in high school, so I'll date myself right there. And it just appeared. Like you said, I was in a suburb, living in a suburb of Boston. And it just kind of appeared. I even remember the channel number. It was channel 10. And so it was fairly low, you know, on the on the cable number system. And it just kind of appeared and then it disappeared. And there were like these huge, huge chunks of empty space. And you wonder, did 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 the channel go off the air or something or what was going on? Of course, I learned out years later that, you know, well, no, there was no advertising. And gradually then the in-house people um, at uh, Warner had their own self-promotion pieces, actually, that was, and then, you know, of course, as it got more and more popular, 
you had people like Sting and and Hollow Notes all doing those um, promos for for the station itself. So back then, you know, you and I now knowing the history, what did they have to play? So they had all of these. Um, I think it was really funny. I was just reading Lars Ulrich from Metallica saying there were these really weird english bands with funny haircuts and i think one of them might have been squeeze um and they had been producing videos before 81 so i guess one of their big ones that looked more like a video was another nail in my heart would you agree absolutely yep and that probably struck a chord with a lot of people because there was so little to play as far as music videos were concerned that those type of videos kept being played over and over and over and over again. So uh, they weren't the one, they weren't the top 100, I believe that were played on launch day, but eventually um, by 1981, you started to have tempted being placed out there. And this is the, this is the mimed, uh, stage version, not the version with mops, if you're familiar with that. Yep. <laughs> you're familiar with that version. Well, and that's what's so funny is that, and you're right in hindsight, because I, I think I'm like you, that I've kind of, you know, now in hindsight, gone back and like researched. It was like, what was MTV kind of like, you know, back and like, what was, what was reality in terms of what they were playing? And, you know, and, and, and you know, what I've learned is that, you know, the British bands, were the ones making videos because that was, there was such a culture of music video at that time. They needed videos to put on top of the pops if they were touring, you know, if they couldn't travel, they had videos they could send out to people. And, you know, and obviously with the Beatles and the Stones, you know, there was such a culture of video even dating back to that. So they were like so far ahead of Americans in terms of making fun videos and making videos that were like, you know, entertaining, and then we're also kind of innovative and groundbreaking. And American bands just weren't making videos. And so MTV was desperate for content. So they had all these great British bands. And so that happened to be like, here you go here, you know, here we are. And, you know, and it's funny, because you're right, because I looked up and I'm like, okay, well, Squeeze wasn't played the first day, but Split Ends was like, like, I think they had three or four different videos on the first day. They just had so much content that was there. And like, all of these, like, you know, weird bands and but like but you're right but squeeze and this is i i wish i've been, I've been looking you know there's very little like you know vcr video people taped from the very very earliest mtv you know i think a lot of people you know taped the first day and kind of retroactively when they've rerun the first day people tape that there's like an august 28th 1981 mtv air check or video check that's around and there's one from november of 81 and those are like the very earliest earliest ones that are out there and it's so interesting watching those because even from you know it it advanced even so far from like the very first day even but you're right squeeze got airplay and you know i found um, doing book research that in, in, in like in weird places that by October, there was a record store in Tulsa that said because of MTV, they were selling squeeze records. And that blew my mind. It was like Billy Squire and the tubes and, and squeeze because they were getting airplay on MTV. And that's so wild to me just because it was like, well, that was, you know, you think about how fast of an impact it had. That was just two months on the air and they were already having, you know, helping bands like Squeeze, who were, you know, I think pretty much a cult band at, you know, at, at the time, even, even though they'd been around for so many years in Amer in the UK, that just, you know, still kind of bubbling under. 
So I just, I just thought that was cool. Yeah. In in fact, it was, um, I think here's the really, you know, weird thought. I, I was just, I was just, uh, reminding myself that it wasn't only bands that hadn't really even been able to get any airplay or were not that well known that were surviving on MTV for exposure, but they had being, uh, they were being played along all of the mainstream uh, acts and sort of elder statesmen uh, like Rod Stewart um, had like a lot of videos available. Um, and I'm trying to think, you know, Pat Benatar was like the second video, I think, that was played on MTV. There were a lot of um, music uh, concerts that could be chopped up. Uh, one of the big ones was the concerts for Campuchia, which had happened in Christmas time of 1979. And there were a lot of legacy acts playing, uh, including Wings and The Who and uh, um, Nick Lowe and, and Rockpile. So they were kind of chopping up those pieces and and promoting them. And it's not even that you had to go that far back. I mean, they didn't have to play Bohemian Rhapsody, but they decided that all of these British um, musicians and artists had, um, you know, for want of a better word, you and I can say, all right, they, they had what they had. So let's put it in between all of these bigger bands that, that were already well established because basically it's all we've got. Um, how do can you kind of like give me your viewpoint on that? I mean, is it just so that's all we've got and we'll just fit them in? Or do you see it now, nowadays is like, that was a, 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 such a, a lucky break uh, to happen at that time? It is, it is very, in hindsight, it is very funny because you do, you're right. You have these like, you know, live videos by REO Speedwagon or live videos by Journey, who are these like massive arena bands that have a very kind of specific musical sound. And then you'll have a block of like squeeze and shoes and, you know, classics nouveau and all of these sounds that like the videos are very different and the, and the sound is very different. And, you know, in hindsight, it, it works, it, you know, in, in a weird way it works because it's, it sounds like, okay, this sounds very 1981, but it was very lucky for these younger bands that they had these videos when MTV needed it, you know, I mean, I think, you know, music was changing too. I think, you know, and, you know, after punk, people were looking for something different. You know, I think, you know, when you, when you kind of look at, you know, and, and I think, and you could say that in the late seventies, it had started to change with, you know, Blondie and Gary Newman had a hit in America and, and M had a hit in America. And so, you know, kind of after disco was sort of waning in popularity and after, you know, um, you know, kind of rock was sort of, you know, getting a little bit stagnant. People were looking for something different because it had been, you know, they were looking for new sounds or something a little bit modern because it was the eighties and things were futuristic and things like that. And so it was very fortuitous that these bands kind of came in. But I think what also was squeezed is that, you know, when in hindsight you listen to them and obviously, you know, they have their such their unique sound and their distinct sound, but there's such a classic you know, bent to their sound, you know, you can hear so much more, you know, the Beatles influences and just, you know, obviously they were, you know, contemporaries of Elvis Costello, but just very thoughtful songwriting. And like, you can kind of hear, you know, Tempted with so soul and Motown. It's like, 
you can hear kind of why they fit in with the American bands too, just because they were very, um, you know, they, and I think this happens with a lot of bands. Like you mentioned the police, you know, the police were seen as these like weird renegade punks when they first came to America. And now we would think of that and be like, really? Okay. You know, cause their, their music is just so good. And I think it's very similar with squeeze is that maybe, you know, music that sounded just so like renegade at the time, like you hear now, you know, where it fits in to what music was doing at the time. And it makes a lot of sense why Squeeze was able to connect with bigger audiences at that time too, because their music was very, um, you know, it, it, it fit in, it would, it would worked. And, you know, both on MTV and MTV also like quirky. And I think that's also what helped Squeeze a little bit too, is that as much as our songs were kind of classic, their videos were very fun and kind of lighthearted and had a lot of personality. And, you know, people were sort of, um, I think entertained by that and we're sort of attracted to that too, because it was something different. It was definitely, you know, it was unfamiliar. It was kind of charming. Well, let me, let me tap into your um, Duran Duranness because <laughs> you are all things Duran. And, um, and this is definitely not a comparison to squeeze, but I do remember that before they really broke, say, with Rio and doing those exquisite, basically, for want of a better word, like movies, um, you know, they had a bit of a strange kind of um, that sort of neo-goth slash trying to be slightly David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust approach with Planet Earth. And, but... In hindsight, again, that we can all talk about, they escalated the um, the sort of what was available to them for doing a music video, and in essence, helping them break in to I would consider at that time, you know, non radio friendly. Uh, music. They just, uh, you know, they enlisted the help of, you know, a great director. Russell Mulcahy was just, um, just amazing and, and got the work that he got out of them. They looked great. Um, they still do. And maybe in fact, that was also another real difference. Um, if we say, well, Squeeze didn't have that energy, uh, but they weren't that type of band. Whereas Duran, did, you know, and harnessed um, a lot of what was available for visual output. Your your thoughts? Absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny because I think, you know, when I mentioned like the 90s, like alternative radio at that time, they would play Duran Duran and Squeeze in like the same hour because, you know, it was all quote unquote the 80s. And it was sort of this like mishmash of alternative but Duran and Squeeze had such, you know, as you know, they had the Beatles in common because I think it was impossible for British bands not to have the Beatles somewhere in their DNA. But they were so different. They were so Bowie. They were so Roxy music. They were so, you know, they loved Talking Heads. They loved disco, and they were coming at it from such a different, you know, different approach. And they were okay with making those like little mini movies, you know, and they had, you know, Simon Laban was the lead singer who had an acting background, who loved the camera. It was really good at being in front of the camera. And I think that that's another difference that a lot of those early videos is you see a lot of musicians who maybe, you know, didn't get into music to do films, who didn't get into music to do acting. They did it. They got into music to make creative work. 
And, you know, they were basically told you have to get in front of the camera. You got to like, you know, act. And a lot of people were very uncomfortable, especially early on, because there really wasn't that much of a playbook, especially in America. But Duran were always comfortable in front of the camera. And that made so much of a difference with their videos. And they were they were a little bit younger, too. You know, when they were, you know, the Rio era, they were all like 19 to 23. So they had a ton of energy. And so they were really... Um, you know, they, they were, it's funny because they weren't that much younger than Squeeze, but they were just a little bit of a generation younger that they were just a little bit more youth culture oriented and, you know, a, 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 a attracted more. I think uh, kids were more attracted to them. The funny thing is, is that at one time, like, and this is like the show I wish I could time travel to see, Duran Duran played with Squeeze and the Split Ends and Bush Tetras and Third World in Philadelphia on the Rio tour in June of 82. And like, you look back in hindsight, you're like, that is such a strange bill. Like it just, it's cause every, all of those bands were doing something a little bit different, but um, that's how it kind of was at the time. They were sort of like, you know, all right, well, you guys are different, but we're just going to put you on the bill anyway. Okay. So it was such an interesting sort of, you know, people were trying to like throw things at the wall to see what stuck too. And Duran had a little bit of that just because they had a, ambitions and we're like, well, no one's ever done this before. Let's see if this works. So, um, yeah. And I mean, Russell's videos were just, you know, that's when you look at MTV kind of video checks now, when you kind of see hungry, like the wolf come in, it's like heads and tails above everything else. You know, you might have, I know there's one that's floating out there where you have a who video and it's kind of like bluish tinge and it's, you know, the band is kind of being very serious and then you have Duran Duran come in and they're, you know, cavorting around Sri Lanka and, and having these like very Indiana Jones like videos. And it's just like, wow, OK, they really made people have to step up their game. Well, here's another point that we're kind of jumping way, way, way ahead in that I I've recalled that um, fairly recently, um, Glenn Tilbrook has said, you know, we are not going to be a nostalgia act. You know, we're not going to fall into these tours like some of the 80s and sort of early 90s uh, bands say like, you know, New Kids on the Block are going out with salt and pepper, et cetera, et cetera. And it's amazing to think that they are still a touring entity, still a, a, a productive band that does not have to really um, incite that kind of memory as well as Duran. I mean, obviously, Duran made such a, an impression with the whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction that can sometimes, you know, cause a little bit like, really? Come on, you know, these guys. And then you have another sect of people are like, well, why isn't Squeeze being considered? But you're coming at it from like these wildly, like you said, different cultures of the 80s can now be pushed together with Squeeze and Duran Duran and all those bands. But then you have another sect of nostalgia. You know, you still want them to play real, but they don't or hungry like the wolf or even planet Earth. And they don't sound um, old. Is am, am I wrong or is it just the chemistry? No, you're completely right. And, you know, and I, I love what you said that because, you know, in, in a way that even though Duran and Squeeze, you know, they've been, you know, they're, they're both still out there touring and both kind of pushing ahead, you know, Duran, as much as they've gotten the rock hall and things like that, and, you know, their set list, they obviously have the hits they can't get along, you know, they can't get out of the room without playing Rio. You know, I think people would riot. 
they're very forward thinking as well. They don't like nostalgia as much as you would think. You know, they put out a new record in 2021 and, you know, they had a very healthy, you know, mix of song, new songs within their sets. You know, they were like, they're still kind of like an old school band. It's like, we put out a new record, we're going to go out and promote it. And I squeeze is so much like that, you know, I mean, obviously when you go see squeeze, they're going to do the the songs people know and things like that. But I loved hearing, you know, and this is, I guess, before the pandemic, you know, when they put out the records, it was so nice to hear the new songs too. And they were so engaged by that as well. And so it's, it's funny to think that, you know, however many years later, they've, they're both two of the bands that are still doing that. They're still like, we're pushing forward. We're going to, you know, continue doing new things. If we're going to, you know, because I know what you mean, especially in the UK, there's this there's this culture of like rewind festivals and flashback festivals. And it's very, um, you know, it's very much celebrating the past. And they have a lot of artists who are, you know, I, I don't they haven't put out new music in many, many years, basically. And, you know, it's funny because Squeeze is actually playing a couple of those this year, which I was like, well, that's interesting. But I, I'm, you know, their set will probably be you know, their way. So they'll have the sets, the hits people know, but also, you know, newer stuff. You know, they kind of use those, even those opportunities of, hey, we're with bands that have, you know, gone on nostalgia tours and we're going to do it our way. And Duran's very similar in terms of like, we're still pushing our new music. We're still engaged by that. That's what keeps us moving forward. You know, we're not ready to sort of just do the oldies circuit and call it a day. Here's another interesting viewpoint that I saw going to the gig that I did go to um, in 2021. Now, that was a standalone gig. They were touring with Hall & Oates, um, but they took a few outlier, um, you know, theater dates. And this is the one I saw them at. And the type of concert goer, it's amazing. It's still like you know, 40 years ago or 35 years ago, where they're still attracting that style of of person who thinks slightly outside the box and very intelligent. And yet you've got them with the older crowd who wants to go in there and have a glass of wine and kick back and remember those um, older songs like Cool for Cats and and Up the Junction, Goodbye Girl. But yet the, um, the level of attentiveness is very strange. So I wanted to ask you too, because I'm sure, you know, with your work and observing everything in such a large span of time with Duran Duran, what do you see as a concert goer, do you see that sort of, oh my gosh, that that kid that's going to this Duran Duran concert in 2022, 2023 is that same kid that went to the concerts in like 83, 84. What's your thought? Zencaster's modern podcasting stack allows you to do everything you need for your podcast from record to publish in one place. You can sound your best. Zencaster's post-production process takes the headache out of audio production. Set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. How about reliability and stability? With Zen Cloud backups and automatic cloud file storage in Dropbox or Google Drive, you can rest easy that your files are safe and secure. You can record each track locally for maximum quality and durability with peace of mind. 
share your master recordings with your team, and download from anywhere in the world with ZenCloud Sync. Go to zencaster.com pricing and use my code, COOLFORCATS, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. It's interesting because um, there's such a wide variety. And because you're right, you do have the people who saw them back in the day. And, you know, we'll talk about that. But I, it's funny because I've come across people who saw them back in the day and for whatever reason, haven't been able to see them again until like, you know, in the last few years, either coming up this year or last year, you know, whether that's, you know, because family took precedence or the band just didn't come near them or, you know, other reasons. And so you have a lot of people who have sort of, you know, were fans of the band sort of coming back to them. And I've noticed that as well, too, that there's been a lot of people who, you know, liked them as a kid and maybe, you know, sort of lost touch with them and are sort of coming back to that. And so that's very interesting. But there's also, there's a really, really strong, loyal contingent of fans who pretty much like up Duran's touring, you know, like, all right, we're there. And they're, you know, they go up front, they travel with friends, they meet friends. Um, and it's a very, you know, kind of strong, like, this is what we do. And, you know, it's funny because it's almost like, you know, it, it's almost like fandoms, like you have like, um, like Bruce Springsteen fandom, you know, my husband's in that and, you know, and I'm on the periphery as well. And, you know, it's like people go to uh, concerts and meet up with their friends because it's it's a social thing. Everyone's watching the concert and everything, you know, but they're using it as an excuse to like, I'm going to hang out by, with my like-minded people. You see a lot of that as well. And it's been very cool because I've also heard a lot of parents taking their kids, their teenagers to shows and said, hey, you know, I'm taking my son or daughter, you know, they're 10, 12, 13, and we're going to our first show together. And there's a lot of that as well with Duran. And I, I really, and it's it's very gratifying. We saw them in Chicago last year and I saw an entire family of, you know, parents and, you know, I think a kid who maybe was in elementary school and like, it was, it was so cool. It's, it's sort of like, passing it down from generation to generation. Um, you know, and I think my husband and I were, you know, he and I are the type that's like, well, Duran's touring, cool, we're gonna go to multiple shows, you know, because we're at the, you know, the stage of our life when we can, and especially post pandemic, it's like, you never know when bands are gonna come back again, you might as well go while you can. And so we tend to do that, but it's interesting. And Squeeze is a very interesting crowd, you know, because, you know, I've seen them in acoustic shows, I've seen them in, you know, theaters. I've seen them in, yeah, I think those are probably like, you know, the two like major ones. And you definitely have the, like the super fans who are, you know, who follow them around too. You have the people who, you know, have been seeing them for years and years and years. And it's very much like, this is what we do. I've also like, I, it, it's terrible, but like the acoustic show, I had some of the rudest people I've ever experienced at a show at, at the acoustic show here. They talked throughout it. This was, this was um, Glenn and Chris's acoustic shows they did. I can't remember the years exactly. And like, and like we told them to be quiet and they were so rude to me. It was like being in high school. It was like being mean girls. They were like, you know, they were giving me like a death stare when we're like, you know, this is an acoustic show, you know, please be quiet. And 
one of them at some point, like in, I think the second set, you know, they, they encouraged crowd participation. And one of them came up to me and like tapped me on the shoulder very pointedly. It's like, you know, is this okay now? Can we say something? And I was, I was so taken aback. Like, cause it was just like, what are you doing here? It felt very, very unsqueezed like, and, and I was like, why are you even here? Like, this is, it was very strange. It was very, you know, disheartening because, you know, when I've seen squeeze shows, that's not the type of fan that I usually see. You know, it, it is people, like you said, who are very invested, who are, you know, happy to be there, who are very, you know, they're a little bit more offbeat and who are very excited about seeing the band. I have actually, I think might probably have been the same person you were dealing with, but <laughs> at that gig in 2021, I had two younger women, probably in their mid thirties who just wanted to party and drink and, you know, were just kind of almost waiting for, uh, you know, a slap and tickle or a cool for cats type of song so they could get up and dance and dance with each other. And I'm not saying that I'm a prude and I just sit there and appreciate and clap, you know, thank you. Thank you. You know, it was, it was kind of strange to to wander into an atmosphere like that as far as maybe there's more of a party atmosphere rather than, and I have seen uh, Chris and Glenn as well, uh, acoustically, uh, which was much that, you know, I have the flip side. Everybody was so attentive and rabid, rabid about shouting out songs that they wanted them to play. So, but here's an interesting viewpoint is bringing in all of those generations uh, to, to bands like them. And even now into Elvis Costello, who's playing again live. What is this situation with MTV as far as, as a touch point? Um, you know, kids nowadays are like, what's, you know, my 17 year old, what's MTV, you know, how do you, okay. how do you explain that, you know, without sounding like an old grandma type person? It's funny because I don't think you can. And, you know, the way I tend to explain it, it's like, well, it's, it's like YouTube, but you know, what was on our TV, you know? And so that's, that's the closest thing I can, I can get in terms of, you know, what it was. And I think, you know, like we talked about a little, about a little bit earlier, that's, that's the biggest difference, I think, is that you, um, you know, there was, you can, you can get any video now. You didn't have to sit by your TV and wait for it to come on or sit by your radio and wait for a song to come on or hope that the record store had the album that you wanted. You know, you had to, you know, there was patience involved and, you know, there was a payoff and things like that. Now you can literally just go and everything is pretty much online. And when something is not online, it's a surprise. You know, when you can't hear something right away and have instant gratification, it's weird. So, I mean, I think that's the biggest change. Um, you know, it, it does feel like a relic. And that's what, what is so funny is that MTV, uh, you know, when you tell people like, yeah, people would literally go to bars and, you know, watch MTV because they didn't have it at home and they would just kind of sit there and watch it because it was such a phenomenon. The idea of watching your favorite artist, uh, you know, rather than listening to the radio was such a novel concept and people were so mesmerized by it. Like it, it's, it's hard to put that into words. It's hard to explain that to younger generations who did not, who grew up with such, you know, visuals and, you know, expecting that they'll, they'll be able to see their favorite band and things like that. Yeah. And you even mentioned that one of the ones, um, 
one of the sort of live gigs that is available, uh, legally or not, we won't talk about that. We're not endorsing then anyway, um, is the gig that Squeeze did in 81 out in LA. And so they're kind of like, uh, and it was promoted by MTV in their famous weekend concert series. So this is like a straightforward, you know, no holds bar. This is what you would have gotten uh, of Squeeze in, in the summer of 81 or so. Now, Paul Carrick is now in the band in this in this set. And it was kind of a very, um, it's weird. It's straightforward, but it's almost like it's in a bar because it's so hot and sweaty considering it's July. But there's this heat that's being given off and it's interesting that they can contain that within just an hour or so's worth of video and then broadcast it so I want you to kind of like this is the one that you said you're kind of obsessed with (laughs) and what do you what how would you describe it I mean I think that's such a good description of it because I mean it's because you're right, it, it was aired on MTV, and they t- like they I found on YouTube too. They have the like touting like you know world premiere premiere. It's a squeeze, and it's a multi camera shoot. It's a really nice shoot too. They have fans, and they have the band, and it re- you really do feel like you're at the show. And it's so funny because it's it is like squeeze like, you know. I mean, I think fans can. You know, I don't. I mean, you can look at different eras of the band, and you can say, you know, I like this era better or that era better. But I also feel like that that era of the band was such a good era too, because and like I, I don't want to like play favorites or anything like that. But I just feel like just in terms of, you know, nineteen, you know, it was it was filmed in eighty one, and the band had been touring and recording, and they were just they had really just been building up to being a really tight band at that point. And you can see that and you can just really feel that. And I mean, I think it also helped that it was in LA because LA, you know, even though we talked about MTV was in suburbs, you know, LA was always such a hotbed for, you know, quote unquote alternative bands because of K-Rock and all these other radio stations. Um, You know, they had a good crowd too. You know, I think if you're like in America and you're a band from England, if you're playing New York or LA, you're going to get a good reception. You know, and so that, you know, that also helped too. And and just like their set list, like if you look at it, like, you know, granted they play a lot of the songs, like, you know, when you look at kind of the set list now, it's it's shocking that they have over the years, a lot of the songs that are sort of, that were in there are still in the set list. But it's like, you know, obviously it was all the singles, you know, you know, Another Nail My Heart, Take Me, I'm Yours, If I Didn't Love You and things like that, but in Cool for Cats, but in Quintessence, you have Labeled with Love and I think I'm Go-Go. Like it's, it, it's a great set list too. It's like everything you would want from Squeeze of that era was there. And, yeah, and they, you know, and they did a, a, a cover too. I mean, granted, right. it didn't cover. But um, and Farfisa beat was just like, what the heck? It was like cramming 50 pounds of potatoes in like a Ziploc bag that was just the the emotion and the and the, it was just crazy. It was just crazy. Yeah. You know, it really and like, you know, you see why at that era also that like squeeze did start to get some kind of traction in America just because, you know, they were a really you know good band at that era. They were just really like, they were just on it because, you know, and I mean like Paul Carrick, you know, um, 
you know, I mean, it's it's funny because people always forget that Paul had like is had such a long career. He already had hits by the time he was in Squeeze. You know, like he had been had hits with Ace in the seventies, and so he had just like such a great pedigree too. And you know that he was in the band at that point, and it was just you know chemistry is inter- it's interesting because chemistry you know, it, in bands is so delicate. And when you swap people in and out, you never know how it's going to work. And for whatever reason, like squeeze at that point, it, it just, it all worked. It was just so good. Now, in contrast to that gig, which was filmed, you know, and then shown sometime in, in 81, fast forward to squeeze at Daytona Beach <laughs> or spring break 1988. Now, I have no problem Talk about squeeze on stage already, but looking at that gig, which I just rewatched um, a couple of days ago, I I was so thrilled to be able to see them because I actually saw them like a couple of days before that gig. I had gone to see them in Springfield, Massachusetts. So now here you have them at Daytona Beach. Um, first off, just kind of give me. I, I'm assuming you've seen this, so just kind of give oh, me yeah. a overall on this on this take. So it's. MTV and just like for just for like back because I don't you know this is another one of those weird things if you tell kids now I think they'd be horrified so MTV would like say hey it's spring break we're gonna go to Florida and they would just book all of these concerts and events and it was basically all these drunk college kids and like just completely out of their minds you know wearing swimsuits wearing you know other you know, barely wearing clothing and they would book bands, but it, w- it wouldn't be like bands you would think like, you know, oh, let's play some party bands. They had like Crowded House wearing like first record, wearing their like, you know, their, their, uh, you know, decorated suits. I believe they booked Till Tuesday, like all of these incongruous bands in the 90s. They booked first album Radiohead, who looked like that they were like, they're like, what are we doing here? St- sitting by the pool. And that's the other thing is that all these bands were by pools. And so it was like by the ocean. And so it was this very weird thing. And here in 1988, you have Squeeze, who is coming off some of their biggest US success at the time. So there's that's probably why they were booked there in their suits in Daytona beach, like playing to all these like drunk college kids. And it's hilarious in hindsight, but it's also, but they sound great. That's, I mean, that's the whole thing is that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they were kind of like, well, it's a gig. Sure. Let's do it. And it's hilarious. And so, you know, it's hot, you know, they're, I'm sure it's like completely miserable. And here they are playing all their hits on Daytona beach. It's great. It's just, it's, it's, it's like, it's high comedy, but it's also awesome. Yeah. Especially the reactions because, I, the, because of the, of the kids, the drunken kids, because that is like so spring breaky looking. Exactly. And I look at, and I think, yeah, you're right. They're literally at the ocean front. Um, and having been to Daytona beach, not during spring break, um, I know what that's like. However, I found it hysterical again, to and I mean we're not making fun of them I promise you know you both and I were you and I are saying no 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 we're not laughing at squeeze we're laughing with squeeze um to watch Jules first he played he had like two solo things in the middle of it in the heat of the night which was again very strange but he played it beautifully and then he did Great Balls of Fire, which was seemed a bit more appropriate, um, which everybody seemed to get up and, and go for. And then Glenn kind of at the very end did this whole weird um, thing where he talked to everybody about how they wanted to join the band. Were they going to jump or were they going to 
compartmentalize and have everybody do backup and everybody chose jumping. So, I mean, you know, they got into the spirit of it. It was like how you said, though, very um, strange. It was it was just very, very like surrealistic. Nowadays, you look back at it. Yeah. And, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, and I, you know, that's, that's like a story I should do someday is like talk to people and be like, how did you get booked on that? Like what, you know, what was the, did your label book that? Did your booking agent book that? Cause obviously someone thought, well, this would be a really good opportunity for you to get in front of people. And I mean, you know, and, and in reality, it probably was, you know, it was broadcast on MTV. It's an hour long concert. Like it's great exposure, especially at that time, you know, because it was, you know, MTV was, you know, was pretty popular at that point. And so having an hour long set to yourself is great, but it's just, it's ridiculous. It's so, it's so funny. It's such a, um, it's such an illustration of where MTV, how quickly, you know, this was seven, less than seven years after they, um, you know, had premiered and this is where that they were at too. And this is where squeeze was at. And it was just like, all right, you know, it was just, it's just very funny and it's, you know, and yeah, Jules is like, what, what am I doing here? You know, and of course, you know, Jules was, you know, so big on MTV anyway, because he did, you know, the kind of, he hosted shows and things like that. And so he was definitely no stranger to it. But, you know, I, I think he was like, all right, that's, what, what am I doing here? We would not, they would not be doing this in England. Let's, let's put it that way. Certainly under not, not those kind of circumstances no. by any stretch of the imagination, but it fit. And then uh, let me interrupt myself because here we are, we've been discussing MTV, which, um, and spring break and all that stuff to me feels very American. So despite the fact that, and we'll also reiterate too, by the way, that at that point with, with 88, they had had their highest charting song, which was Hourglass, unbeknownst to some people out there. It's not Tempted or Black Coffee. It was actually Hourglass. So there could have been some reasoning for that. But we tend to approach it all from a very um, American standpoint. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts or insight into how this was all perceived how a band like that could basically tour all across England back in those days between 79 and 85 ish. And yet America was laser focused on putting them on a a, a station, a channel nationwide um, that really kind of, like you said, kind of helped them crack uh, the U S market. You know, it's, it's funny because when you when you look at there the fact that Squeeze had those hits around that time, so like eighty seven, eighty eight, they were not the only British band at that point that had their biggest sort of American um, breakthrough around that time. And I think that's what's so interesting in hindsight is that you're right. Like they, you know, they had you know the, the hits. I think quote unquote people know now, you know, originally didn't chart that much. You know, and I'm not sure. And it makes sense that they were bigger in England because they, you know, at their heart, they are a very sort of British band. And it's it's one of those things where it's like it's an intangible thing. You can't necessarily put your finger on it. It's it's like why there's just certain bands that either it's their, you know, approach or humor or something. It's just it's and I've, I've talked to other people who, you know, UK um, 
someone actually said this recently about my writing that I, I they read something I wrote and said, oh, you know, this, this turn of phrase, this is a very American way of writing or American criti- way of criticism. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. And so there's just, there is definitely sort of differences in between, you know, kind of the two eras. But anyway, getting back to Squeeze is that, yeah, in, in 87, 88, it was like all of these bands. And I think Squeeze, their, their evolution, I think, was a little bit more natural. You know, I think, you know, when you listen to Hourglass, you know, that's not a song that you're like, oh, that's really weird. They don't sound like themselves. Like, you know, they, they, that, that sounds very squeeze and something they would definitely do. But you had bands like the Psychedelic Furs who drastically changed their sound, you know, by, by like 1987. And they were kind of moving in that direction, but they definitely had sort of their biggest profile around that time. And, and like Echo and the Bunnymen, who, you know, I think would probably never necessarily got above a huge cult falling in America, but Lips Like Sugar, it was huge then, you know, that was sort of their biggest sort of American hit. And, um, you know, New Order got bigger around this time too, I think in America, you know, obviously the Pet Shop Boys had come out and they were big too, but they didn't necessarily have like the history, but, you know, Squeeze, I think kind of benefited from like a weird, you know, I don't even know if you would say it's like a secondary 80s British invasion or just sort of um, the fact that because so many of the bands changed their sounds up a little bit. And the fact that the modern rock charts, modern rock radio had started to become a little bit bigger. You know, Billboard started a modern rock chart to kind of measure this because they sensed something was happening. And Squeeze kind of benefited from that. You know, it's very interesting because I think when we look at the late 80s, you think of pop, you think of things like New Kids on the Block, you think of, you know, Stockache and Waterman, and you think of these like very glossy pop songs. And, but there was also this like wave of British alternative bands that had a ton of success in the States. And, you know, Squeeze was one of them, even though they sounded totally different than the Furs and totally different than the Bunnymen and New Order. And, you know, they were doing their own thing, but there was just sort of this like, you know, little window of time where cracked open. And, you know, and MTV, I think, helped that because they always played British bands. You know, they they were, you know, I think consistently throughout the 80s, one of the biggest supporters of British bands, you know, depending on, you know, kind of across the board. But do you also feel that um, taking sort of MTV, no pun intended, out of the picture, that a lot of that did have to do with presentation? Um, I've spoken about it like you know, ad nauseum about how they felt that they just did not fit into sort of, like you say, um, a presentation mode being put into these videos that they weren't comfortable in. And and you could feel that coming off the television screen. And it was just the thing to do. Whereas um, all these other bands had something to say. And I know that, you know, Michael Jackson just took it, you know, right out of the stratosphere of, you know, say around that time that Squeeze was just about ready to to start to break out. But by that time, it felt like either the labels were out of touch with what to do with them. And like you said, the alternative modern rock um, acknowledgement was just about ready to come into play with maybe bands that um, were not going to necessarily really break the bank, as it were, um, but they were now going to start to get airplay. Um, and I have to ask you, um, there was an, there was like a, a, a radio report um, publication. Is it called The Hard Report? Yes. 
uh, back then. And then you also had, um, you know, uh, the stuff that you were doing at Alternative Press. And, um, you know, so that's kind of where I'm heading with this. It's like, how do you work with a band that was not really um, acknowledging so much their heritage because they didn't have to and they didn't want to back from that time period. Um, but also you had a bunch of people that they were surrounded with who weren't just weren't maybe quite tuned in to, to what they had to offer and just decided, well, there's this gig on MTV <laughs> coming <laughs> up in spring break. That's your exposure, you know? So let me, what do you think of that? I mean, it's true. Like it's, and I mean, I think that is the other sort of, you know, uh, you know, I think thing to point out is that Squeeze sort of succeeded, you know, despite everything around them, you know, when they sort of had success in America, it was just, at, you know, in spite of everything going on, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'd have to go back and look research wise, but I would have to think the label was not like, you know, sure. Yes. We're going to have a hit with, you know, uh, Hourglass. Sure. After like having, you know, no huge hits, with the band, you know, back in the day and like, you know, cozy fan Tutti Fruity did like, I think nothing in America. So I think that there were, you know, I think the expectations are probably a little bit low too. So, you know, I mean, I mean, it's sad to say, and I, you know, I don't know for a fact, but you know, you wonder if there was sort of, you know, and because radio payola was a big thing at the time still, you know, when you talk about crowded houses talked about, um, don't dream it's over was pretty much dead in the water. And they, there was a lot of sort of maneuvering that went on to make that song a hit. And you wonder if potentially that happened with squeeze. I don't know, but you know, just in terms of, it was such a, you know, it, it almost seems like it felt like it came out of nowhere in a sense that this band that, you know, you know, I, I think hourglass is a great song. I really love it. Eight, five, three, five, nine, three, seven. I love that song. That was, you know, their other like big hit in America. And, you know, but they're not necessarily, you know, things you would expect. You know, I think that, you know, Tempted and Black Coffee in Bed, I think, are a lot more, you know, a lot poppier. The fact that they didn't become a hit is like befuddling because both of those songs are so great. Um, so you wonder, it's like, you know, what was kind of going on behind the scenes? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's it, it's interesting to kind of see because, yeah, like, who would have expected this? You know, that was, they had their kind of ephemeral you know, bit of like mainstream attention. And then, you know, it, I, they've been sort of, you know, that's been it since, even though they're very great draws on tour. And I think that's, I guess, the other important thing is that, you know, Squeeze still is very popular in America, you know, despite the fact that they maybe didn't necessarily have the biggest amount of like radio play or chart success here. They draw very well and are very well received when they tour here. I mean, they've, I can't believe how many times that like, you know, we've gotten the opportunity to see them in the last like decade or so. Like it's, you know, actually maybe 15 years, I guess. Like it's, it's really like, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, you know, you feel spoiled in a way. And the fact that they can produce and feel happy about it. Whereas like you say, right. sometimes there was this weird dichotomy of, okay. Uh, and I've mentioned this a few times, whereas you're getting older, but still popular, what songs are appropriate? And, and I'm not coming at it from a PC angle, so to speak. I'm just talking about generally speaking, as Chris has mentioned many times, because he's the writer, uh, so to speak, 
I don't feel comfortable, he said, like 20 years ago, singing certain parts of, of Cool for Cats uh, because it's very derogatory towards women. And But that's the life he led back then. And, and that's how we explain that. And nowadays, you do want that nostalgia back at you, despite everything and what was going on um, as far as the upbringing and, and the, the history of that song. They're willing to play it now, you know. And again, I don't know if that means because of... They've changed uh, their viewpoints. And uh, Chris has said recently, you know, I feel very blessed that I've had all of this time to write all of these words and make music. So um, that's the kind of vibe I get. I don't necessarily get that vibe with Duran because I just think of them as like these 20 year olds who just keep on, you know, pushing on as as it were. Um, so that's that's kind of an interesting kind of uh, go around with, with those type of bands and uh, who's going to be nostalgic, who's not going to be nostalgic, who's going to decide that what I'm doing now has relevance. What kind of audience am I attracting? Um, yeah. Am I overthinking this a, maybe uh, uh, a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny because like, you know, Duran has, I mean, cause here, here, like, like just as an example, you know, Rio turned 40 last year. And, you know, I think a lot of other bands would say, Rio's turning 40. We're going to play the so the record in full. We're going to do a big thing at Royal Albert Hall and do this, things like that. And like, that's, that's, they would never do that. That's so out of character for them, you know? And I don't think, you know, Squeeze, I don't think they would do that either. You know, the, the, you know I don't think that they would, you know, sit there and say, oh, we're going to play full albums. You know, am, am I mistaken? They've never done that, right? In terms of like presenting albums like that. No, it's definitely been a um, a mix of old and new. And right, always. Yeah. yeah, and that's very similar to Duran, is that, you know, they're thankful and have a lot of gratitude for what they've done in the past, but they don't want to necessarily say, okay, you know, we're going to, like, just live there. They want to make sure that they're still pushing themselves. You know, I, and I feel like, you know, because I've thought about this a lot, and I feel like this this is when it's it's artists who came up in the punk scene there's something about them that, you know, that prevents that, you know, cause you look at someone like Blondie too, who are still making new music and still touring, you know, they're still pushing forward and doing things. And, you know, and they've been around, I think they've probably been around, I would say as long as squeeze, but of course they came up in the punk band, the punk era. So like bands who came up in that era are almost like they have, they have a little bit of an allergic they're a little bit allergic to nostalgia in a sense, because, you know, you, when you grew up in punk, you were a little bit tougher. You were a little bit like we're, you know, making something new and you always kind of have that in you. And, you know, I see that a little bit with squeeze too, you know, because gosh, when you look at those set lists, you know, if you were a casual fan of squeeze and some of the set lists, especially before the pandemic, when they were playing so much of their new material, I imagine it was like the people you said who were just like, you know, get, get, get to cool for cats, you know, get to tempted because they were really presenting their new music in a very, very heavily way. That's what the song, the shows were for. And, you know, I was super into it, but I know a lot of fans, you know, casual fans probably weren't. And so, um, you know, it's interesting to think about, you know, and I think I, I would imagine too, over the years, like you said, with like Chris is that their own relationship to their music has probably changed and evolved as well. There's probably some things you're like, Oh, I'm not going to play those anymore. You know, but there's some things like, Oh, okay, maybe we will, you know, but I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. 
And I hope that what we actually see out of all of this and discussion with you and me is that Duran Duran and Squeeze tour together, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm like right there. I'm following the tour. Like I'm quitting my job and following the tour. No, it's kidding. But I, I would be, you know, every every time I could, it, you know, it'd be, it's, it's funny because that would be a really interesting inspired tour i think because i mean i remember when when squeeze was touring you know hollow notes has toured with tears for fears and then also squeeze in recent years and both of those pairings on some level made so much sense to me and i know other people were like what are you talking about that's you know that's those are so weird i'm like no 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 there's there's something really uh, you know i can't put my finger on it but it makes a lot of sense together and you know i think squeeze is a little bit more obvious because they obviously have like the motown and the soul and common things like that um, but yeah, I, I love that. Like it just made so much sense to me. And I think, I don't know, I would like that. Maybe, maybe we should put that out there in the universe to make that happen. Yeah. Couldn't you see like, like Glenn and Simon, like singing, um, ordinary world together. I mean, that's the whole thing is that, you know, uh, you know, obviously this is a squeeze podcast, but one, you know, one thing about Simon Laban and that, you know, I, when I, interviewed people, um, you know, about his voice is that he has a very soulful voice and kind of a very sort of, you know, bluesy voice. And especially, you know, over the years, he's, as he's, you know, as he's learned how to sing and use his voice in different ways as well. Um, there's some really like beautiful moments. I think him and Glenn could really, really sing well together. I would actually really like to hear that. I think that would be fantastic. Okay. So Simon, if you're listening, you know where to find us. You know <laughs> definitely. You know where to find Annie, and the next the next ball to drop for 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 Squeeze will be a collaboration vocally between Simon Laban and Glenn Tilbrook. Yes, I'm down. Let's do it. Okay, sounds good. I think that's a fantastic way to end our our chat. <laughs> I think so too. Brings both worlds together, doesn't it? Rather nicely. It really does. <laughs> So Annie, thank you so much. I've had a ball talking about this. I'm glad we were able to talk and laugh about certain things and with regards to both bands. And um, I'm sure we'll come up with with some more wonderful MTV themed podcasts in the future. I would completely agree. You know, as I sit there on the inner, you know, at, at the places where there's uh, videos and things like that, I'm always looking for old, old MTV, you know, vid checks and stuff like that. Cause it's, it's fascinating to watch all that stuff when, you know, no one knew what they were doing when cable was just kind of in its infancy. And now we do 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And definitely we'll, we'll get together again very soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me.